Hello, Urbanist. Do you want to receive exclusive interviews with planners, authors, and changemakers in our cities? Sign up for the Parksify Playbook, the Insider's Guide newsletter for all things urban planning, including news, interviews, event listings, and more. Delivered to members' inboxes every Friday. To receive the Parksify Playbook, just go to Parksify.com to become a member. Again, that's Parksify.com to sign up for the weekly Parksify Playbook. Hello, I'm Ash Blankenship, and this is the Parksify Podcast, where each week I talk with planners, urbanists, and authors in our cities to discuss topics that impact our communities. This week I'm speaking with Brent Totterin, former chief planner for the city of Vancouver, and now a city planner and the founder of Totterin Urban Works. I recently had the opportunity to talk with Brent about his tenure as Vancouver's chief planner and about some of the challenges facing our cities. I think the biggest challenge I find is the culture of excuse versus the culture of aspiration. Um, Most cities are facing very similar issues. The cities that are succeeding are the ones that have gotten past that culture of excuse. What I call the eight most unhelpful words in the English language, we could never do that in our city. My conversation with Brent Totteren, all ahead on this week's episode of the Parksify podcast. Hello, Brent. Thanks so much for joining me on today's show. Let's talk about your role as Vancouver's chief planner. It's what I would say, and probably many people would say, is one of the most defining moments in your career. So this was during a time when the 2010 Winter Olympics came to Vancouver. And also during your tenure, there were vast changes throughout the city that helped Vancouver transform into the urban center that it is today with improved mobility, an influx of bike lanes and public transportation, a new waterfront, and the list really goes on. So as someone who oversaw the planning and development of Vancouver, can you tell us why these improvements were necessary? I'll talk a little bit about how I came to Vancouver first, and then we can get to the other parts of your question. The um, I was uh, approached uh, about my interest in the chief planner role when I was very young, when I was 36 years old, which was pretty young um, for a chief planner of almost any city, let alone uh, Vancouver. I was the manager of Center City Planning and Design in Calgary, and I was having a lot of fun and really enjoying the challenges associated with, with trying to be part of a transformation of that city which was becoming, or I thought had the potential to become a real it city in terms of smart, progressive city making. Uh, From a city that used to be a very uh, private sector knows best, government should just get out of the way kind of mindset. So it was very fun uh, and inspiring to be in that city at that time when I got contacted about my interest in Vancouver because um, I I knew well the former co-director of planning, Larry Beasley, Uh, who was a mentor of mine, a a hero of mine. And uh, he had told me for years, someday you'll get a call and you should be ready. And I would never took him all that seriously. Uh, But uh, I got the call uh, saying that he was going to retire with with his co-director, Ann McAfee. And I I have to say, I, I initially put my name into the to the running 
mostly out of respect for Larry because I didn't really think uh, I stood much of a chance because I was young by by uh, by North American standards for any chief planner, let alone Vancouver's. Uh, but as we went through the process, I got more and more excited and, and inspired by the opportunity, although I really recognized that um, to a certain extent I was positioned for failure here because I was young, I was from outside Vancouver, I was replacing two iconic long-time career Vancouver planners who had risen up the ranks and and become co-directors of Vancouver and, and icons in the planning profession. So I knew that wasn't going to be easy, um, and uh, the, uh, the it, it was somewhat intimidating, and I think, thinking about it. But I'm someone who really loves a challenge, and I couldn't think of a bigger challenge than that. So um, as I went through the, the long uh, competition for that role, um, I went from putting my name in thinking um, uh, it was just a nice thing to do to respect my, my friend and mentor and by the end of the process, thinking that I really did want the job and having a, a, a clear sense of what I wanted to do with the role. And as you say, it was a really important time uh, in Vancouver, not just because of the retirement of these two great urbanists, but we were at a point where the, the energy was starting to shift from not only transforming the downtown, but also looking at the rest of the city, uh, looking at the rest of the region in a more comprehensive way, uh, thinking about densification, what I call density done well in many contexts, not just downtown, all sorts of uh, different ideas, not not to get something started in Vancouver, because Vancouver had had generations of smart city making, but there was a great opportunity to take that to the next level, to figure out what the next level was, a, a Vancouver 2.0, Vancouverism or Vancouver model 2.0, or maybe 3.0 depending on your perspective on, on the, on the uh, eras. And um, it was really exciting. It was, it was a wonderful opportunity, by far the hardest job I ever had in my life, but by far the uh, most interesting, certainly. What are some of your greatest accomplishments, you believe, while Vancouver's chief planner? Well, uh, to be clear, first of all, I, I, I never think of accomplishments in, pers- in, this, in the form of individual accomplishments, uh, to me, everything uh, I did, we did together. Uh, my team, uh, and even having the opportunity to learn from my predecessors, past generations of great urbanism in Vancouver. But uh, the, the specific projects that I can think about, first of all, certainly the Olympics, pre- preparing for the Olympics, uh, doing the detailed work on the Olympic Village uh, in record time with a gun to our head, because as the saying goes, you can't tell the Olympics you need a few more months and you're not ready. So, and, and not just having, not just wanting to do a village for the athletes, but do a community that was going to be a model, uh, not just for green community building, but inclusive community building, etc. So the aspiration of that was remarkable, the time frame remarkable. And um, I think the achievement remarkable, especially as I've now had the opportunity to watch that community evolve over the eight years since the since the Olympics were held. Uh, there's that. There's um, a lot of uh, next step thinking in terms of the downtown, uh, new uh, a next evolution in thinking around the view corridors, which are our iconic policy about protecting views from public spaces to the mountains through the downtown new policies and approaches around the skyline that really opened up the idea towards more adventurous architecture uh, 
in the right place for the right reasons uh, and not just all the buildings tending to look the same because we I had certainly heard that narrative where you know Vancouver has wonderful urbanism great planning but why do all the buildings look the same even if they are great smart brilliant building typologies the monotony of the architecture uh, was frequently commented on by me or to me not only by locals but by visitors as well so uh, the idea of matching our great smart urbanism with a more adventurous uh, architecture and, and more uh, architectural risk-taking was something I really was interested in pushing. I called it at the time, we were known as and often referred to as a city by design, that we, that our city was not accidental, it was a product of design thinking. But I also wanted us to be what I called a city of design, a city where there could be creativity and inspiration that wasn't all master plan and could uh, be experimental and uh, creative. So the art was to marry those two ideas, a city by design and a city of design, in the way that we looked at our architecture and our urban design and our city making. And I think that's continued since I left City Hall, which I'm really happy about. I think it's that's part of the evolution and thinking of what Vancouverism has been. So that has been going on um, in the downtown the preservation of the protection, really, of our CBD from residential housing, which was critically important because we were getting this speculation in our CBD that housing would happen and we weren't getting any new office projects built. Um, a project called the Metro Core Jobs and Economy Strategy changed that and powerfully so, such that we're now uh, doing many, many uh, new office buildings within the downtown because of that planning clarity. It really shows the power of how planning provides clarity for the marketplace and can actually help make things happen when you make things clear. So that was um, really, really important. Um, green design, uh, our first lead gold private sector building policy under our eco-density initiative, where all private sector buildings rezoned in the city had to be lead gold plus with six energy points. So um, and, and uh, new policies that were put in place to require district energy on any sites of two acres or greater. So by far the highest green building standards of any city in North America, I think still the highest, even though we have um, evolved them even higher. What we put in place back in 2010 is still higher than anything else any of the cities in North America have, do have done since. So all sorts of different ideas in the downtown but then also, and in the Olympic Village, but also out in the rest of the city and in the rest of the region. Corridor planning, our first, I think, really smart corridor approach to planning in the Canby Corridor, which runs along our Canada Line uh, subway uh, line that was built for the opening of the Olympics. And that has won uh, a great number of awards uh, for, for urban design and linear city making introduction of policies around what I call gentle density, which is the ground-oriented densification, hidden density, which was the laneway housing. We've got over 3,000 approved laneway houses and more secondary suite, infill suite policies, which I called invi invisible density at the time. So ways that the lower density neighborhoods could start to evolve to allow aging in place, more nimble communities without necessarily exploding the community context with high rises or even mid rises. So as we went out of the downtown into the rest of the city, that really, really tough conversation about how neighborhoods sh should not be considered so-called stable, but should think about how they can evolve to be better for people to age in place or to downsize within their community. 
and keep their uh, communities, schools open and their community shopping open, etc. So all sorts of those kinds of initiatives, which were really, really hard because much harder than actually uh, from a community conversation perspective than having a conversation about the changing downtown, because now we're talking change in low density neighborhoods. And then the regional context, too. We actually, I was part of the leadership that put in place the, the new regional plan for Metro Vancouver. So looking at all those scales of urbanism and city making, not just the downtown, but including the downtown, but in every other context, and not looking at it from a one-size-fits-all perspective, but from a smart, contextual, strategic city-making perspective. We'll return to my conversation with Brent Totterin in a moment, but first, do you want to receive exclusive interviews with planners, authors, and changemakers in our cities? Sign up for the Parksify Playbook, the Insider's Guide newsletter for all things urban planning, including news, interviews, event listings, and more. Delivered to members' inboxes every Friday. To receive the Parksify Playbook, just go to Parksify.com to become a member. Again, that's Parksify.com to sign up for the weekly Parksify Playbook. So what more would you like to have done while Chief Planner? Oh, God, so much. (laughs) There was never enough time. We were incredibly ambitious. I remember um, being told by other Olympic cities that don't expect to do any other work in the two years leading up to the the Olympics because the Olympics are going to be your full-time job. And we, that was so not us. Uh, we did the opposite of that. I remember the month before the Olympics started, which was in February 2010, in January 2010, I remember we brought four huge, big policy projects to council for decision. New view corridor approach, uh, the new green building policy, and there were, uh, I think, the new framework for community plans. And I remember saying to our staff, any one of these would be the biggest thing that another planning department would do in that particular year. And we're presenting four of them in the month before the Olympics start. That was kind of indicative of how we rolled, how we did things. It was creative. It was fast. It was productive. It was inspired. Now, that, that changed. Um, in, the, in the later years of my six years there, there was a change in leadership who is largely the reason I'm, I'm not at City Hall anymore. And the culture really changed. And I spent a lot of my time talking with City's clients of mine about the power and importance of culture and how we used to have it at City Hall and how it changed even in a, a City Hall like Vancouver's and how you have to protect against that if you want to continue to have that creative culture that allows you to get a lot of creative stuff done fast. So since your role as chief planner in Vancouver, you actually founded Totteran Urban Works, which is a consultancy firm that works with cities around the world in order to advance urbanism and planning. So how did your role as Vancouver's chief planner actually prepare you to work with other cities? Well, I had started my career in the private sector, almost 10 years as a consultant to hundreds of cities and developers. Then I spent six years in Calgary and then six years as Vancouver's chief planner. And I always assumed when you get a job like that at 36 years old, you assume you're not going to retire in that job. And I assumed that that would probably be the uh, the uh, epoch, the high point of, of a municipal 
leadership career. So I always assumed that when that time came to an end, I would go back into the private sector. But the question is, what kind of firm? And I have a very different firm, deliberately so, than the firm I spent my first 10 years in or any firm I've seen. Uh, It could be called boutique, although that's somewhat limiting. Uh, I think it's very specialized. I call my brand advanced urbanism. Uh, My clients don't want to do business as usual. They don't even want to do better than usual. They have to want to do something exceptional is the way I look at it in order to to hire me and to have me spend my finite amount of energy and resources uh, on that kind of project instead of some other kind of project. So whether it's a city uh, and the cities that hire me tend to be very aspirational cities, often cities that have already done remarkable things but are inspired by that and want to take it to the next level, or state governments or provincial governments or 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 and developers. And um, I started off the first couple of years after leaving City Hall saying I didn't want to do much for developers. But since then, I've, I've gotten straight what my brand is and what my message is. And I've invited developers who want to do something exceptional and progressive and want to work well with local municipalities in doing it. I've invited them to be a part of it. And so it's a bit of a different kind of a mindset than most consultants who get hired by developers. I I joke, and it's not really a joke, that when developers contact me, I interview them rather than them interviewing me because they usually know who I am. That's why they're contacting me. But I want to make sure that what they want to do and how they want to do it really reflects that idea, that brand of advanced urbanism. And if they can... I can be um, their toughest critic. Often, in order to satisfy my own uh, ideas of what great urbanism is, I can have a higher bar sometimes than the local municipality they're working with, which means that when we go, when we take something into City Hall on behalf of that developer, we get a very different response usually than I think normal developers and normal consultants get because I've got a reputation for wanting to do exceptional things, and even being tough on developers in order to achieve that. So it does create a different dynamic when I walk into a city hall, interact with a mayor or a chief planner as part of an applicant team rather than as an advisor to that city. So Brent, what are or what does an ideal urban city look like to you? What are some characteristics that you think all cities need to put into place? I'm not sure I ever bought into the idea of an ideal city. Um, I, there are elements of cities that I love, that I recognize uh, what it is about them that I love. And I, I tend to love just about every city because I think there's cities that there's almost every city has something that they can teach other cities. Any city I work in, uh, it's not about the perfection of the city. It's about the aspiration of the city. My favorite clients are not the cities that are perfect already. That can be kind of boring. And by the way, there are no perfect cities. But um, the, it's the aspiration of the city, the ambition of the city to want to do better and, and to walk the talk on that rather than just talking a good game. Uh, I think that's what's really exciting. But having said that, there's, there's some elements of how to make any city better that is coming up no matter what continent I work on, what country I work in, multimodal is huge. Uh, moving towards walking, biking, and transit, not just um, more than has been the case in the past, but really prioritized uh, to make cities more multimodal where there are real choices. 
um, where you're not car dependent, where the car may be there, but you're not car dependent. That's a big part of, of better cities. So mobility and transportation has been a really big part of my work. But the smart, progressive land use, the compactness, the clustering, the connectivity, um, and the, um, the way our communities and cities are organized, not only for walking, biking, and transit, but just for better uh, interactions in terms of community design, healthier communities, more sustainable communities, more cost-effective communities, just about any way you can look at a success, there are urban patterns that are performing better. Um, and if you can uh, put those patterns in place or facilitate those patterns, you get better demonstrative success, both in terms of things you can count and things you can't count. So I think uh, whether it's land use and community planning and design or mobility or sustainability or housing policies or economic development policies or, or just about anything that I get called for, it's usually about just a better city making and how you get there. And a lot of my clients contact me about the content, but I often say that that is the easy part. It's easier to understand with all we know, and we know more about cities and why they succeed or fail now than we ever have in the past, notwithstanding the amount of fake news out there. We do know more. The, the, the challenge is to create the culture, the vision, the mindset, the will and skill in order to actually achieve those things. And it's remarkable how much energy we put into getting it into our own way and making hard things e or easy things hard and excuses about why whatever it is uh, some other city is doing, we could never possibly do that in our city. So it, I've found that a lot of my work is about the culture, the conversation, particularly with the community, but also with the political leaders. Um, the, the, the mindset and the psychology of improvement, moving towards better cities, because the, the content answers are almost the easy part. So what are some of the most defining challenges that you think many cities are facing today? And what can we actually learn from these challenges? Well, um, I think the biggest challenge I find is the culture of excuse versus the culture of aspiration. Um, you know, most cities are facing very similar issues. The cities that are succeeding are the ones that have gotten past that culture of excuse. What I call the eight most unhelpful words in the English language, we could never do that in our city. So the cities that are getting past it, and clients of mine like Medellin, Colombia, for example, that used to be the murder capital of the world, trust me when I say they have solved issues that are a lot harder than most other cities have to currently deal with. These cities have found ways to move forward and progress often very quickly by having a different mindset about change, about what's possible, and about this, this culture of excuse. So um, I think learning from cities like that is very powerful. So when I go into a new city, if I'm uh, approached by the mayor or by the chief planner or by a developer, uh, it's usually about finding the barriers to success, figuring out the mindset barriers, the psychological barriers or whatever, do it very quickly because we don't have all the time in the world and figure out a different narrative, a different conversation that can lead to better outcomes and do all that within weeks, not within years. And um, that sounds easy, but I've actually found that it can be easy if we, if we don't deliberately seem to make it hard. 
because and like I say, many of my clients call me because they do already want to change. They don't just necessarily know how to change or they may not be fully aware of how much they're going to have to change in order to actually achieve what they say they want to achieve. But um, that helps uh, because they've already kind of decided that the status quo isn't good for them. And that's important. Um, I don't generally work for cities that are comfortable with the status quo. They don't call me because probably I, I'm not their kind of consultant. And, and if they did call me, I wouldn't go because they're not my kind of client. I'm, I'm looking for cities that want to and aspire to do something better, more advanced in terms of urbanism. And they're just struggling with the how. All right, Brent. Thank you so much for joining me. Okay, my pleasure. That's all for this week's episode of the Parksify podcast. I'm Ash Blankenship, your host. I've been speaking with Brent Totterin, former chief planner of Vancouver and founder of Totterin Urban Works. As a reminder, the Parksify podcast is funded by members. So if you're enjoying the podcast, consider becoming a member for just $5 a month. All funds go directly towards the podcast. You can sign up today by visiting Parksify.com. And all members now receive the Parksify Playbook, the weekly insider's guide to all things urban planning. Our theme music was composed by bensound.com. Thank you for listening. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already, and even consider leaving a review on iTunes so more folks can find Parksify. Until next time, keep chasing those public spaces.